Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Now you may recall just a little bit ago in episode 114. Maybe a long time ago. Yeah, maybe a long time ago (laughs) considering it's every two weeks. We were looking into the life of Henry Purcell and his music for the funeral of Queen Mary. In an interesting turn of events, we were talking with a friend of the show, Sergeant Emily Kursky, who mentioned that Pershing's own ceremonial band had recently incorporated that piece, the music for the funeral of Queen Mary, into their repertoire for funerals at Arlington Cemetery. And we thought, this seems to be the start of a Purcell revival. So we wanted to jump on the bandwagon, pun intended, and look more into Purcell. And for the record, we're doing this before it's cool, and we are on the cusp of this said Purcell revival. Excellent. We are trendsetters. (laughs) We are the Mendelssohns of our age. We are. (laughs) So today, as trendsetters, we're going to be taking a look at a more upbeat collection than the funeral music, of course, and more in the genre that Purcell is most known for, his incidental stage music, And this time, we're going to look at the music for the play, The Old Bachelor. So first off, let's talk about the play. Let's. The Old Bachelor is a stage work that was the debut for playwright William Congreve. The play premiered in London in 1693 when Congreve was just 21 years old. Now for context, Shakespeare was active in playwriting a little less than 100 years earlier than Congreve. So when Congreve presented this manuscript of the play to his friend and mentor, John Dryden, Dryden proclaimed that he had, quote, never seen such a good first play in his life. So essentially, it's not the best play in the world, but for a young writer, it was pretty good. I'd like to take this brief moment to point out that William Congreve, a playwright, was born in a town called Bardsea Grange. Ah, Bard. It was destiny. Yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. And William Congreve, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare. It was meant ah, to okay. be. okay. <laughs> I think you're right. Obviously, anyone named William is yeah. a playwright. There's no other option. <laughs> right. If you're not a well, if you're not a playwright, you have to go by Bill. You are a playwright, and you're legally allowed to go by William. Okay. Anyways. But if you go by Bill, then you have to go on adventures. That's true, as long as you have a best friend named Theodore. We've gotten extremely off the rails. (laughs) But hey, then you can go back in history and learn about both William Congreve and Henry Purcell. So there we go. Let's continue. Yes. (laughs) Let's continue on with our investigation. (laughs) With our excellent adventure. Um, anyways, yes, it was a very good play for being his first, and the London populace thought that it was excellent as well, because it ran for an unprecedented 14 days, which was, for that time, an extremely long time to run for a play. The play itself is a comedy, 
and based largely on misunderstandings, kind of like a comic opera. The plot centers around two men, Belmore and Vainlove, extremely good names, mm-hmm. who are notorious philanderers and a surely old bachelor Hartwell who is tricked into marriage. Of course, shenanigans abound. There are numerous disguises and little white lies that turn into big problems, and there's plenty of innuendo. It all turns out okay in the end, though, when Belmore and Vainlove end up actually marrying their true loves, and Hartwell turns out not to be married, as he had thought, because the priest who had presided over his ceremony was in fact one of these other characters in disguise, so the marriage was false. Kind of like a 15th century, or excuse me, a 17th century Seinfeld, if you can, if you can imagine it. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure I can, but okay. (laughs) So, well, let's ignore that and get on with the music. Um, The music, as we mentioned, was incidental music written by Henry Purcell. And music for the stage was one of Purcell's fortes. So for a premiere play, he was quite a get for the young William Congreve. Now, you may be asking, just what makes incidental music? Asa... A most excellent question, indeed. Thank you. I'm glad you wrote it. (laughs) Well, you read it. Um, It is music that is essentially the soundtrack for the play. So obviously, plays are different than musicals, and they're certainly different than movies, but they all have something in common in that music is used to set the scene. The incidental music was used as mood setting for certain scenes or used in between scenes as a way to keep the audience occupied. Often, incidental music is actually published later as a suite, essentially the highlight pieces that are suitable to be heard on their own without the play going on in the background. So today, we won't be hearing any lyrics, just all vibes. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, speaking of vibes, our sources have failed to provide us with a full score for all the music we'll be hearing from the suite. So a little of this analysis to follow is... A little bit of vibing and guesswork on our part without the benefit of studying the score. There are there's so much in here because as incidental music typically does, it jumps back and forth between styles and genres to set the scene and to set the mood, and contained within this one are several styles of Baroque dance, including a minuet, boire, march, and jig. There are also two hornpipes, one of which is more famous than the other an air, and two songs, so quite a lot of music for just one play. So this suite opens with a dramatic minor key prelude, and this piece was likely played as the actors were getting into place and perhaps making their opening remarks to the audience. This piece does have many hallmarks of the early Baroque period. There is something that could be considered counterpoint, so listen here as the treble instruments play this little motif, which is then followed by the bass instruments mimicking said motif. There is also the Baroque favorite of sequencing. And in this case, it sounds like it's going around the circle of fifth.
But other than that, what seems to give away this piece as definitely being Baroque? What makes this style of music have such a recognizable sound that places it right in this time period? Another excellent question, Asa. Thank you once again for writing it in the script. (laughs) (laughs) You're just so full of great questions that I provided to you today. (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) So anyway, the answer to these questions would be it's the basso continuo. The basso continuo is made up of the harpsichord, or in the case of our recording today, the lute, and also usually the lowest bass voice or voices of the ensemble. The harpsichord or lute will usually lay out the harmony in the background, while the basses will hold on to drone notes, though they do occasionally contribute to the moving lines as well. For another example of basal continuo used in the Baroque orchestral setting, we would refer to you to the ever-popular Vivaldi Seasons Concerti. Very good examples of basal continuo and other Baroque styles. And certainly we can find the basal continuo in other eras as well, not just limited to the Baroque. Take, for example, classical era operas. They very commonly rely on basal continuos. However, that may result in them having perhaps a bit of a dated sound, maybe confusing listeners not in the know, that not all such pieces may be from the same era. The next movement up on the docket is a bit more lively than our initial prelude. This is written in a rolling three-beat meter, and one thing that the Baroque style also seems to love is heavy downbeats to help ground these dance melodies. this movement seems to start out with some more counterpoint-esque figures. The violins come in first, followed by lower and lower voices in canon. part that makes this piece really sound out as, quote, from the Baroque era, is this certain chord progression. Now, if we had the score for this, we could tell you exactly what these chords are, but alas, the internet has failed us, so we'll just describe the sound of the chords (laughs) instead. So, we begin with a major chord. This is likely the tonic. Then we move to another major chord, likely a 5-7, and possibly a 5 of 5 that resolves into a new minor key. Sorry to anyone who actually knows this piece, and if we are wildly incorrect, please let us know. (laughs) But be kind about it. We were doing our best, and honestly, (laughs) listening to chords move very fast is difficult. (laughs) Regardless, this is a very common progression that you'll hear in Baroque music, and it has a very driving and triumphant sound to it. If you listen to other Baroque works, you're very likely to pick it out. This next part of the music is quite repetitive. Um, Perhaps this was much more of the background soundtrack type part of the music with lots of stage action going on in front of it. Our 
next movement is also dance-like, but this time in a four-feel instead of a triplet meter. Perhaps this is meant to show a stately character, while the three-beat piece had been background for someone more rowdy. <laughs> now on to a bit of a slower movement again. Something to listen to in this movement is the use of ornamentation throughout the melody. The performers will add little trills and grace notes on the important notes of the melody that help to emphasize them or add more weight to important cadences. Again, I wish we had this score available, because then we would be able to see if these ornaments were written in, or if they were improvised by our performers. Because often in the Baroque era, they were improvised, and a lot of these things such as articulations, dynamics, and these ornamentations that you hear now were not written in, and rather left the performer to know the quote-unquote rules. So, for example, a lot of these stylistic playing you hear from the modern performers of Baroque music is just inference of period-accurate performance practices. And I will tell you from experience, a lot of ornamentations these days are actually written in um, because they know what they're quote-unquote supposed to sound like. <laughs> you should put an ornamentation here. Exactly. And now we will move on to the aforementioned more famous hornpipe. A big part of this hornpipe melody is the meaning of straight and syncopated rhythms. The first downbeat in the violins is actually an eighth note quarter note syncopation. However, the runs up to the next measure are nice straight sixteenth notes, and this motif continues throughout the piece. In fact, even in the B section, though the melody is different, this specific eighth note quarter note syncopation remains a constant. Our next movement in the suite is also upbeat, which, for an arrangement in this performance suite, is probably a good move to keep the audience's energy up for a little while longer. This has a much more percussive sound, although no percussion is present. That has to do with the basso continuo again. First off, the lute is capable of making very staccato sounds due to its plucked string nature, and the low voices can really hammer out notes, almost sounding like little drums. There's also what sounds to be a fun addition section in this movement's B section, where the first violins start and then subsequently more and more players are added in, thus gradually bringing up the volume. It's a subtle effect, but listen closely for those additional players as the line goes on. The next movement is likely the minuet. We are again in three, and it's a very stately and smooth dance. Thank you. 
listen closely in the viola line in the B section. It's almost, but not quite, a mimic of the violin line, and this gives a very pretty background effect. Unlike most minuets we would think of in the classical era, usually being a minuet and trio in ABA form, with the B section being in a duple meter, this minuet just has two parts that are both in three. Our next movement goes along with the flow, so though it's actually now switched into a two-beat feel, it's still quite smooth sounding, so thus flowing nicely from one movement into the next and not being too jarring for the listener. Our next movement gets percussive again, and this time with the violin having very sharp staccato repeated 16th notes at the start of the melody. And we hear that particularly triumphant chord progression again. It might not be the exact same chords as we heard before, but it gives the same effect. And can we talk about sequencing? Yes. Well, this is one of the longest that I have ever heard. It just keeps going and going and going. movement with the strumming of the lute. This is in a slightly slower tempo than the music that we had just previously heard, and the melody gives a very strong downbeat on tonic. This melody very much gives a final bows sort of feel, so hopefully this was performed at the end of the play when everyone was happily wed, or not wed, and going off to live their happily ever after lives. So we encourage you to take a listen to this piece on YouTube, the ensemble that is performing it in our recordings, called A Far Cry Ensemble, has this lovely performance up there, and it's always fun to watch the performers while listening to a piece. Um, now, Allison, before we close out the show, would you like some fun William Congreve facts? Yes, please. So you've been okay. looking these up whilst recording. I have opened the Wikipedia page for William Oh, well, Congreve. don't look at Wikipedia. Listener, do well, you how, hear this? He's using Wikipedia. Know, how else am I going to know um, some some hot William Congreve facts? Now I have to cite the Wikipedia article in our citations page, too. <laughs> but go ahead. Tell me what you found there. All right. Um, okay, some some extremely fun names here. Um, 
he collaborated on a set on a play that was that was performed in 1704 called Squire Trilubi, which is just great. Were you going to ask me to guess the name of the play? I was going to ask you to guess the name of the play. Um, <laughs> How would I ever guess that? What? He was, so William Congreve was in a club. Was it a political club? A very powerful political club in eight in what is this 17th century England mm-hmm. that shares the name with a popular modern candy what is that candy um the tootsie roll no <laughs> um a dum dum lollipop no but it is two short words okay almond joy no <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, let me think again. Um, nerds rope. Nope. <laughs> I have no idea. Asa. The Kit Kat Club. Oh. Common, um, commonly associated with the Whig Party. Hmm. So yeah, the Kit Kat, the Whig Kit Kat Club. Well, now I feel like we need to look into the great. history of all of that. Uh, Congreve, I also learned this, um, coined three super popular idioms in his plays that are commonly misattributed to William Shakespeare. (gasps) And I I love this. So, hell has no fury like a woman scorned. Mm, Yeah, that is definitely misattributed to Shakespeare. Yep. Um, The original quote is, heaven has no rage like love to hatred turned, nor hell of fury like a woman scorned. Okay, it's a little bit superfluous there. It's been paraphrased, yeah, yeah but that's, you know, old ye oldie English. <laughs> um, he also coined music as charms to soothe a savage beast. I thought for sure that was Shakespeare. Oh my gosh. No, both of those past, <laughs> both of those quotes were phrases from The Morning Bride. Are we sure he didn't lift them from Shakespeare and put into his plays? Obviously, According people have read Wikipedia. Shakespeare plays. Okay. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Well, see, yeah. this is where... Do we doubt Wikipedia? How much do we doubt Wikipedia? Uh, there's a lot of sources down here with ISBN numbers, so, you know. Um, it's risky, Asa. Yeah, You know, we I could know. log into Wikipedia and do some alternative history shenanigans. We, we could, um, but I don't think there's anything better than the Kit Kat Club, so... <laughs> I don't know, the Tootsie Roll Club sounded pretty good to me. Tootsie Roll Club. (laughs) That is pretty good. There is one more that he coined. One more phrase in the uh, play Love for Love in 1695. You must not kiss and tell. Oh, okay. I I didn't know that was a Shakespeare misattribution anyway. That was Congreve. Not necessarily a Shakespeare misattribution, but that's... The first recorded instance of kiss and tell, which is neat. Yeah. It's it's funny because you never, like, you rarely hear of English poets and playwrights other than Billy Shakespeare himself. <laughs> Billy Shakes himself, yeah. Billy Shakes. <laughs> um, turns out there's other good poets. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? And if you didn't know or if you and did have know. now learned something, yes, or if you did know. Um, and you've enjoyed re-listening to what you already knew. Send us a list um, of all the English poets you can think of. Us... 
don't look them up, just all of them that you can think of. Um, <laughs> and if there's a suitably to... long list, we will read it on the show. We will. <laughs> um, and if you have enjoyed listening to Purcell, do dive a little bit deeper. Take a look more into Purcell. Remember, because you heard it here first on the Coffee House, there's a Purcell revival afoot. And we are the and harbingers of Purcell. We are the harbingers of Purcell. The harbingers. The heralds. The heralds of Purcell. <laughs> and if you would like to herald more podcasting into your life, um, do please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever it is that you get your podcasts, and share us. Herald. No, thank you. Herald us to a friend or colleague, family member, etc. Um, I'm sure they'll love we, it. <laughs> We do not provide the trumpets. <laughs> Sorry. Um, You'll have to bring your own trumpet. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well. For, for the coffee house, I am Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Suite from the Old Bachelor was performed by a Far Cry Ensemble. You can find The Coffee House on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.